Good morning and welcome to the well here at STSA, an ordinary place where extraordinary stuff happens all the time. And the extraordinary stuff that we got going right now, you're coming in part two of a series called Family Matters, which as Joe said earlier, is not based on the hit show, although we all remember TGIF. Okay, if you were back in the glory days of TV, you remember it, absolutely. But it is not based on that show, as great as that show is. That could be a future series, but it is not what this series is based on. This series is based on a core belief that I believe inside my heart so deeply, and I hope you believe as well. And that belief is this, is that my primary identity in life, my primary identity in life, the defining characteristic of who I am, Father Anthony, or you insert your name, the defining characteristic of who we are is that I'm a member of the church. It's not who my parents are, not who my wife is, not who my children are, not my job, not my genetics, not my hereditary. The defining characteristic, the most important thing about me and about you is that we are members of the family of God. And that's even more important than the family that you grew up in. And I know some of you would say, how can my church family, which I see for an hour a week, be more important than the family that raised me and spent all these, I spent all those hours in that home? How can my church family be more important than my genetic family, than my biological family? Well, I'll just tell you this, is that one of those two families, your earthly family and your spiritual family, one of them will go away. And one of them will last forever. One of them, what unites you is your blood type. One other one that unites you is the blood of Christ. One of them... What we share may be common experiences or personality traits or environmental characteristics. And the other one, what we share, is the spirit of the living God. And what I said last week is I likened it to Little Orphan Annie. Y'all know the story of Little Orphan Annie, that she grew up in a certain environment with certain biology, certain hereditary, certain genes, certain whatever it may be, and then she was adopted by Daddy Warbucks. And what I'm saying is the defining characteristic for the next, let's say she was 10 when she was adopted, the defining characteristics for the next 60, 70 years of her life is based more on this environment, the adopted environment, than it is the hereditary environment. Yeah, maybe she was malnourished when she was an orphan, but that doesn't need to be a problem anymore than now she's in Big Daddy Warbucks' house because now this can redefine her. Yeah, maybe she didn't have nice clothes when she was over here, but that's no more a problem because she's now over here. Maybe over here that she struggled with whatever issue it may be that she struggled with. But now that she's a member of this new family, that has the power to redefine her life and give new meaning to her life if, here's the critical if, she will embrace that new life. And that's what we're talking about in this series. Just being adopted by Big Daddy Warbucks doesn't change her life only if she's willing to embrace that new life, embrace that new family, and the expression that we'll go with today is willing to go all into that new family. Is she going to experience new power and a new stage of life? Yeah, it's okay, back there, it's okay. No, don't, don't, it's okay. Someone will get it over here, it's okay, don't worry, thank you. That's what we're talking about here in this series, Family Matters. We are talking about our core values as a church and who we are as a church. And back when this church first started, we came up with not only a mission of who we are and why we exist, but we also came up with 10 core values that define who we are. What does it mean to be a member of the church and specifically this church? That's what these 10 core values are. And every week, we're going to talk about one core value. There's 10 of them, and there's only five weeks in this series. So what we're doing is every week, we're gonna talk about one core value here, and then the other core value, the corresponding one that corresponds to like kind of the other side of the coin when it comes to the pillars, in life groups. So that's why if you're not participating in life groups, you're only going to get half the series. But that's okay. We still love you anyway because we talked about last week our first core value, which is what? Who remembers our first core value? Limitless acceptance. So we accept even the people who aren't in life groups. That's okay. You came, you came on a good week. Limitless acceptance. Help me out here. I'm, just, I'm not just talking to myself here. What does limitless acceptance mean? Read it with me. It means we believe that every person who enters our church is the most important person in the world. That person is sent by God and should be loved and accepted as such. We talked about this last week for those who weren't here. If you left last week and weren't moved to limitless accept, then you weren't listening. Because what we talked about is how God's limitless acceptance of us must translate to my limitless acceptance of others. And we agreed that we accept all, no matter how different they may be, no matter what they're coming with, they may be different ethnically, racially, spiritual level. We don't care about that stuff. We accept all the way Christ accepted us. And some would say, but we shouldn't accept sin. I don't say accept sin, but we say accept sinner. And we say, we need to preach the truth. We need to tell them that they're wrong. 
I agree. Not necessarily that way. But what I say is this. Is did Christ first love and then preach or preach and then loved? Okay. So many people today, because we want to make an excuse of not to love and not to accept people who are different than us, that we say, no, they need to know the truth. And I agree. Oh, everyone needs to know the truth. But Jesus never used the truth as a hammer. Jesus loved. Jesus loved. He accepted. And then he had a relationship through which he could preach the truth. So that's what we're going to do as well. We said last week that our instinct says when there's a mess, instinct says to move away from the mess. These people are different. Move away. That guy doesn't think the way I think. Move away. Those people didn't grow up the way I grew up. Instinct says move away. Jesus says to move towards, and that's who we are as a church. Second core value is what? Second core value is what? Maybe the microphone wasn't working on that one. Second core value is what? Authentic community. We did not talk about this last week, but hopefully you did this one in your life group this past week. Read it with me. Authentic community means what? means we believe. That's pathetic. Say it again like you mean it. We believe God created the church to fulfill our relational needs in addition to our spiritual needs. We reject superficiality in relationship with one another just as we reject superficiality in our relationship with God. This is what you believe. This is what it means to be a member of this church. So if you're sitting here in these pews, you don't sit silent. You proclaim this. This is what I believe. That we believe that we were not meant to be superficial here or here. And you can't disconnect the two. Because Jesus said the most important command is love God and love your neighbor. And you can't disconnect the two. You can't love God without loving your neighbor. You can't love your neighbor without loving God. So we need depth here and we need depth here. And hopefully you had a chance in your life group to talk about this. And this is less of an action item and this is more of a mindset shift that we need not quantity of relationships. Okay, because that's usually how we think. I need more friends. I need more people. I don't need more. I need better. I need deeper. I need more quality, not more quantity. And what we talked about in life groups, if you participated in them, is about how God likes things in groups. God doesn't like things in isolation. God likes 12 tribes in the Old Testament. God likes disciples altogether. God likes church. God likes things in a group context. The reason why is because God himself is a relationship. And we are made in the image of God. So you cannot have father without son and without spirit. You cannot separate them. God is love means love is relationship. You cannot have one without the other. And you cannot have a Christian without another Christian. A solo, isolated Christian cannot really be a Christian because we were meant for relationships with one another. Third core value. We're going to talk about today. I'll give it to you, okay, so I don't have to make myself feel depressed and no one knows what they are. Third core value, which we're not actually going to talk about today, but I'm just going to mention this you're going to talk about in your life groups this coming week, is transformational communal worship. Read it with me. We gather to be transformed by the real presence of God in our midst every time we meet. Liturgical prayer is not just a routine. It is life-giving and real. It is the center of our life as a family. All of these core values, as you'll see as we go through, they build on each other. They're not random, you know, kind of, they build on each other. Acceptance is number one. We accept all, no matter where you came from. And I hope there's a lot of people sitting here today that didn't know how they would be received when they came here. And they realized, you know what, this is a place of acceptance. And then once we're accepted, then we're called to go deeper in fellowship and relationship and community, authentic. But then what? Then we're just like a country club? That we just share donuts and coffee together? No, what unites us is not our similarity because I, in fact, think that we are one of the most diverse churches that there is out there. And I love the diversity, the way we think, the way we act, the way we raise. I love that. What unites us is the table of the Lord. And every Sunday, we gather together before the well for the divine liturgy, the liturgy of the Eucharist. We gather around the table of the Lord. That's the center. What unites me to you is not that we think the same. What unites me to you is not that we vote the same. What unites me to you is not that we cheer for the same sports team. We may differ in all those areas, but what unites us is the table of the Lord. That's the center of our life. That's what y'all going to talk about this week in your time together in life groups. So I'm going to skip past that, and I'm going to go to number four, which is our topic for today. But before I get to number four, I want you to realize that all of the core values, there's like a theme that runs through them. And that theme is a theme of quality, not quantity. So it's not just community it is authentic community it's not just communal worship it is transformational communal worship it's not just accept when you can it is limitless accept means that we want to be authentic we want to be genuine we want to be real we don't want to just go through motions and no core value expresses that more than our fourth one which is our topic for today which is 
passionate pursuit of God. You got to say it that way. You got to say passionate like that. You can't just say passionate pursuit of God. Say passionate with me. Say passionate. Passionate pursuit of God. No, like squint, okay? Like passionate pursuit of God. Come on. Say it with me. One, two, three. Passionate pursuit of God. You got to say it like you mean it because we're talking about passion. Passion means what? Passion means a strong or compelling feeling about anything. Passionate. We're passionate about our sports. Passionate, sure passionate about our politics. We're passionate about our TV shows. We're passionate about everything. Well, I'm saying the number one thing we should be passionate about is our God. Read it with me. We don't stop worshiping after we leave the church. We seek to live passionate lives for God, pursuing him every day through prayer, Bible reading, giving, witnessing, and everything we do. What is the opposite of passion? What is the opposite of passion? This response indicates really <laughs> just joking. <laughs> what is the opposite of passion? Oh, we're going to have some fun here. We, do you guys like when we have fun? Or you like when I'm just boring? You like we have some fun, right? So we interact here. So uh, go with it. I mean, what's the opposite of passion? Apathy. Okay, I wrote down the following. I wrote down routine. Apathetic, I wrote down. Half-hearted. Dry. Do you all agree with me? That's the opposite of passion. Someone give me a Bible word for all of those things. There's one word that every Christian knows this word, that this word is a bad word in Christian circles, and you never want to be this. And that word is? Luke. Warm. Revelation chapter 3 verse 5. People who don't know much about the Bible know this verse. Revelation chapter 3 verse 15 says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Last week I talked about diarrhea. Today we're going to talk about some vomit. <laughs> Anybody have a good vomit recently? Anybody? Past week, a good vomit, like a, a good one? past couple weeks, something projectile, like anyone had a good vomit recently? All right, I am not much into vomit as I explained last week. Those who weren't here last week, I explained how I feel about vomit when it takes place anywhere in my vicinity. I pride myself on very few things in life, but one of them is the ability to hold in the vomit. I pride myself on that, that I can hold it in. I may get nauseous, but I can stuff that, suck it back down, and I take great pride and the number of times that I've vomited in the past 20 years, I can count on one hand, okay? And that's something, a source of pride for me for some reason. I don't know why. My vomit-holding ability was really put to the test one day on my honeymoon. Yes. Let's set the scene. The year is 2001. Two young lovebirds named Mike and Marianne get married, and they go off on the honeymoon to Maui, Hawaii. That's right. That's living the dream is what we were doing. Okay, this is before pre-priesthood. We were both IT consultants making some good money. So we said, let's go to Maui, Hawaii, and let's do the fun stuff like all the normal people knew do that stuff. We get to Hawaii. The first thing I remember, okay, we probably got there at whatever time at night, okay, and then, you know, the time changed. We were tired, so we didn't do nothing that night. Next morning, I remember we woke up, and we were hungry, so we said, we'll go out to eat. So I said, let me treat my bride to, like, a first place as a married couple we're going to go is Denny's. So we're going all out, okay? Because if it's a place that brings you a menu, that's like, okay, that's high class where we're from. I still remember, no joke, I still remember to this day, I remember getting that menu and being like, what's this? Like, is this, did, did Denny's all of a sudden become the high class place? Because it was so expensive. And people, if you're planning a wedding, listen carefully to this one. Denny's in Hawaii is different price than Denny's in Fairfax, Virginia. And I remember thinking to myself, this place is so expensive. So I told this to my wife. Okay, as we were right there, and I was asking, like, is this a typo? Is this, like, the dinner menu? Like, I remember telling her, Marianne, enjoy it, because we're never coming back here again. <laughs> and that became the theme of our honeymoon, ladies and gentlemen. Enjoy it, because we're never coming back here. So we can do whatever we want for the next five, six days. We're never coming back to this place again. So we did all kinds of strange things that we've never done before. So we did, like, the, the snorkeling, and we did stuff like that. Because you know what? We're never going to come back here ever again. And ever since then, we're in Myrtle Beach every week, every year, and we're happy. Okay, so it's like we're happy. One of the things that we did that we're never, ever going to do again is we went on a helicopter ride. You ever done these helicopter rides they, in, in the volcanoes and Hawaii? I said, okay, let's do a helicopter ride because surprisingly, it was actually quite affordable. Okay, so I said, okay, this will be fun. So I take Marianne. I say, we got something special planned tonight. And we're going to go someplace where we can go out to eat before we go. And we go to this fine establishment. Okay, can I tell you the name? The name in Spanish, okay, for those who know Spanish, it's like a Spanish name is Rey de la Hamburguesa. 
Anyone know what Spanish that means? The king of burgers, a.k.a. Burger King. We had Whoppers, fries, and milkshake. <laughs> but it's a step up from Denny's, okay? It's a step up from Denny's, okay? We go to Burger King right before the helicopter. That is mistake number one. We get to the helicopter ride. It's a small little thing. It takes seven passengers. Okay, so it's got the driver, two people in the front, and then four people in the back. It's all couples. So they're like, oh, you guys are honeymoon. You guys sit in the front. You get the best view. Like, okay, this will be nice. We sit in the front. All right, and then everyone's like, oh, the lovebirds and the love and the love and the love and all that kinds of nonsense that they're talking about. And within minutes, the test of my love, my love is truly tested and put to the ultimate test. Because approximately three minutes into the helicopter ride, three minutes, just far enough that you can't turn back, Marianne gets nauseous. And she gets so nauseous that she vomits. They give each seat has its own barf bag. So she, boom, there goes the Whopper that I just spent $5.99 for, right there, okay? <laughs> and I see it, but I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm honeymoon, I'm compassionate, I'm love. Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm like, we're still in that honeymoon phase, literally, because it's like day two of our marriage. So I'm like, you know, it's okay, and I'm like holding her hand and like holding her hair. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm doing something nice. The smell, like we're in a little confined little quarter. So the smell, and I'm like, but this is where I, like, this is my thing. I hold down my vomit. Like, this is like what... Like, I was made for this moment, okay? Like, this is what I was made to do, to hold it in, and I'm holding it in, and I'm okay. And then a couple minutes later, I realized that while I'm able to hold in my vomit, Marianne is not able to hold in hers. So she needs to vomit again. So I gave her my barf bag, and she now barfs in my barf bag. Now, this is the important part of the story. What do you think happened to her full barf bag when she grabbed my empty barf bag? The exchange was made one for one even. So now I am holding her barf bag and she is barfing next to me. And had the story ended here, we could have survived. We are now four minutes into this helicopter ride. Everyone in the back then saw that she's not going to make it to the end. They started to give her their barf bags. She barfed four times. Where are all those full barf bags? In my hand. I am dying, I am dying, I am dying. We are eight minutes into this horrible helicopter ride. And this is mistake number two. We signed up for the long ride, the 40-minute ride. We should have gone the 20-minute ride. This horrible ride where all I'm doing is praying, even though I walk through the valley of shadow, I fear no even for you are with me, Lord. Honestly, had there been a parachute, I might have considered going off. Worst part of the story, after the 40 minutes of the worst, 40 minutes of my life, we get down to the bottom, we walk back to the car, and we say, like, thank God that ended. Marianne goes, hey, you want to go grab something to eat? Because <laughs> she was hungry now. We survived. 16 years later, we survived. Did you know that there's one sin that makes Jesus want to puke too? that there's one sin that makes Jesus sick to his stomach as well. That's what the scripture says. And that sin that makes Jesus want to vomit, to puke, sick to my stomach, is not lying, is not cheating, is not murder, is not kill innocent babies. The sin that makes Jesus say, I can't take this, I want to vomit, is lukewarm. Why? This verse right here is a strange verse. Because it says, I don't want you lukewarm. I would rather you hot, that makes sense, or cold. Why is cold better than lukewarm? Like, that doesn't make sense. You would think that, like, cold is the worst, warm is better, then cool, then, or, or then, then hot. So you would think that cold, like, isn't a step in the right direction? A step in the right direction? Why is cold worse than warm? Usually we explain this, excuse me, Usually we explain this by saying, the one who's cold is unaware, and he's like deceiving himself, and he thinks like, I'm good, and I'm fine. I'm sorry, the one who's warm is, I'm sorry. The one who is cold knows that he's wrong. The one who's cold knows that he's in bad, so he's more likely to make a change and become hot because he at least sees the error of his ways. Whereas the warm guy's like, well, I'm okay, like I'm not that bad, I'm better than so-and-so. That's usually how we explain it, and that makes sense, and I'm fine with that. 
But I think there's a little bit different explanation as well. And I think the people who read this in the first century, people in a church named, of a city called Laodicea, the Laodiceans, understood this a little bit differently. If you understand the geography at the time to the city that's being written to right here in Laodicea, it was a landlocked city. No sources of water around. The only way they could get water, there was no river, no lake. They had springs. And on one side of the city, outside the boundary of the city, they had hot springs where the water came out hot. On the other side, a complete other direction, they had cold springs where the water came out cold. So they had hot over here, they had cold over here. What do you think happened when they would travel to the hot spring way outside the city boundary and gather the hot water? What do you think would happen to the water by the time they got back? It was warm. What do you think would happen when they went to the other side and got the cold water by the time they walked back into the city? What was the temperature of that water? Warm. Because no matter which direction you go, whether you start hot or start cold, if you do nothing with the water and just leave the water by itself, it will naturally become warm. And that teaches me a lesson. And the lesson is this. That without any effort, everything becomes lukewarm. If it starts off cold or it starts off hot. If it's hot tea or iced tea. If I leave it alone for 24 hours, it'll be the same lukewarm. If it's cold milk or like the cappuccino hot milk, if I leave it alone for 24 hours, 20 hours, 10 hours, I don't know how many hours, what it if I leave it alone, it'll become warm. It'll be no different than the other. So one may start here, one may start here. If you leave it alone, it'll become warm. Hot tea, love it. Cold tea, no problem. You ever had warm tea? Yeah. Hot milk, Okay, put it in your coffee. Cold milk, sounds good. You ever had warm milk? Like, been out of the fridge for 24 hours? Like, ugh, anyone that excite them? No, just the thought of it makes you want to puke. The thought of it makes you want to puke. And that's what Jesus is telling us in this verse right here. Our spiritual lives are the same way. I think there's many people today who are sleepwalking through their spiritual life and thinking that everything's going to be okay even though I'm putting in no effort. That, hey, you know what? Like, how many times we think to ourselves, you know what? I'm good. I'm better than so. I know I'm not over there, but I'm better than that. How many of us would give ourselves, you know what? I'd probably give myself a C plus, B minus. Everyone gives themselves a C plus, B minus. You know what that means? That means probably lukewarm. That means putting in no effort. And just kind of coasting on, well, I was, and I did, and I remember Holy Week, and I remember when I had the retreat, but you know what? Like, thank God I'm not like so-and-so, but I'm just kind of like, I'm on cruise control. I don't think there's many people sleepwalking today through their spiritual life who Jesus wants to say, with all due, my, all my due respect, I don't mean this in a bad way, that your spiritual life makes me want to puke because you're on cruise control and I can't accept cruise control. Passionate pursuit of God, our core value for today says that we are passionate about God and we will fight. We will strive. We will not go lukewarm. We will not just be that church that just goes through the motions. We will not be those guys who are just routine. Just go to church on Sunday, and you can't match their Sunday to their Saturday. They don't look anything like it. Like, I see them on Friday, I see them on Saturday, and it looks nothing like Sunday. We won't be those people. We will be passionate about our God, and we will pursue him on Monday, and on Tuesday, and on Wednesday. We won't have one face at work and one face at church. One face at the party and one face when it comes to being at the liturgy. We will not be those people. We will be passionate, and we will pursue God together as a community, but also individually on our own. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 12, when he was asked about the greatest commandment. He said, Mark 12, 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. He's saying, I don't want halfway. I don't want halfway Christians. I don't say love me with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. I want all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And anything less than that makes me sick to my stomach. Our question for today. Okay, I'm going to try to calm myself down here because I get excited. I get passionate. Okay, I get passionate. Our question for today. I'm going to make the assumption. I'm going to make the assumption that everyone here in this room today wants to be on fire for God and was on fire for God at some time. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. 
I'm going to say what we're going to talk about right now is what I believe are the four most common passion killers. The things that kill the passion in our life. I think of it like a balloon with helium. Okay, that balloon with helium, no matter how much helium I put inside, if I poke holes in the balloon, it's just a matter of time before the balloon is empty. So the goal, I'm not talking today about how to recharge. I'm going to make the assumption that you desire that. And I'm going to go give you the benefit of the doubt and say there may be certain things in your life that are draining the passion from your life. And I want to talk about four passion killers that from my experience are the four most common. I'm going to go through these quickly. Because again, I'm gonna make the assumption that you're smart enough to figure out what to do with these. But I guarantee you, if you're struggling with passion today, there's one of these where God is gonna speak really loudly and clearly and he wants you to take an action. And I'm gonna trust that you're smart enough to be able to apply and to take the action. But I want you to listen carefully because one of these things may be killing the passion in your life and making you vomitable in God's eyes. We'll go through these quickly. Number one. Number one is an overfilled schedule. This is the most common one that we say. I don't know if this is the most common one that's true, but it's one that we say most. I have an overfilled schedule. I'm busy. I'm busy. I'm busy. Did you pray? No time. Bible? Who's got time for that? Church? Traveling. Uh, fellowship? Uh, you know, my, my schedule? And pencil me in for whatever. Uh, time for confession. Uh, Father Anthony, I'm busy for every Saturday for this and that, but can you pencil me on Thursday from 3 to 3.15? Overfilled schedule. Overly busy. Let me tell you something about this. This is a disease that we have today. This is a disease that we have today. And the disease is this. It's not that we're too busy. It's not that we're too busy. It's not that we have less hours than previous generations. You know the disease is that we think busyness means importance. So many times people come to me and they say, Father Anthony, I know you're so busy. Why do you know I'm so busy? Like you just met me. How do you know I'm busy? How do you know I'm not just playing video games all day? Like how do you know? Father Anthony, I, I know you're so busy. What are they really saying? What are they really saying when they say, I know you're so busy? What are they saying? Because I think you, what you do is really important. And I think you have a significant life. And I think you're doing things that are meaningful. But they translate meaningful into busy. I never say I'm busy. If you ask me to do something, I'll never say I'm too busy. I'll say I don't want to. I'll say I got better things to do, but I'm not gonna say I'm too busy. Because that's an excuse, that's a cop-out. We're not too busy. But we somehow think that like, yeah, the most important one is the busiest one. Says who? That's a disease, ladies and gentlemen, that we got to get rid of that disease because busyness and significance are not the same thing. And in fact, I will tell you that the more busy you are, the less significant you will live, live in life. That's what Jesus said. Famous story of Mary and Martha from Luke chapter 10. I'm going through these quickly because, again, you can apply this stuff. Now, it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving a.k.a. busy. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Therefore, tell her to help me. Jesus answered and said to her, listen carefully. Some of you need to hear this to say today. Some of you, God wants you to hear this today. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. One thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Did you know the most important thing you may do today may be nothing? The most important and significant thing you may do today, tomorrow, or the next day, equals nothing. Nothing will get checked off your to-do list. Nothing will come off your, mo your productivity list. The most important thing that you may do may be canceling something and doing nothing. So let us stop falling for the lie that busy equals success. Let us stop falling for that, that the one who's the most busy is the one who's most successful. Disagree. I don't want to be busy. I don't want to get to my funeral and say, who's Father Anthony? Oh, he was the busiest guy in the world. He was just so busy. We love him. I want people to say he led a significant life. That when he was at home, he was at home. When he was at church, he was at church. All in, mentally. That when he was serving, he was serving. When he was with his kids, he was with his kids. When he preached, he preached with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. When he retreated and took his time to his Bible, he was there with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't want to be busy. I want to be significant. And I want to make sure I have time for everything in life. Solomon the Wise, Ecclesiastes 3.1, they made a song out of this verse. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. That's number one. You who are too busy, maybe God wants you to know that your busyness is killing your passion. Number two. Number one, I said, is the one we say the most. Number two is the one I believe that affects us the most. An unconfessed sin. An unconfessed sin. 
Nothing will steal your passion more than guilt. Trying to live a passionate for God life when there's unrepented and unconfessed sin is like trying to start a fire in a swimming pool. No matter how many matches you use, no matter how big, big that blowtorch is, if you are living with unconfessed, unrepented, undealt with sin, you will never succeed in living a passionate life for God. King David, man who was most passionate, speaks in Psalm 38, verse 4. And he talks about his sins in life. And I want you to see the, the emotion, the words that he uses to express his feeling when he is drowning in this sin, before he has repented of this sin. Look what he says. He says, my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. You cannot feel foul and festering and mourning and too heavy and burdened and then be passionate for God. You can't. So what happens when our passion conflicts with our guilt? Guilt wins every time unless you do something about it. Your passion cannot overcome your guilt. You've got to get rid of that guilt and remove it from you. Now, wouldn't it be great if there was a way in the church that we could just get rid of the guilt? Wouldn't it be great if there's like all these sins that like weigh heavy on me and I could just like come, you know, like I know I can like pray about it, but someone, like let's say someone like you, Father Anthony, like you're a nice looking guy. Like wouldn't it be great if I could just come to you and then you could say like your sins are removed, your sins are forgiven, and someone could like reassure me? Wouldn't it be great if the church thought of that one? Oh yeah. We do. It's every Saturday night. It's called confession. I don't even need an appointment to do it. The church, at the instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ, knew that we would feel weighed down. We would feel burdened. And the church gave us an out. You know when you're playing Monopoly and you get the get-out-of-jail-free card? We have an infinite number of get-out-of-jail-free cards. And every single Saturday night, we come and we get to check one in. We get to check one in. We get to check one in and get out of jail free. Not jail, jail. Jail of guilt. Jail of burden. Jail of heaviness. Jail of, how many people say this about your spiritual life? How's your spiritual life? It's just blah. You ever heard that one? Blah. That's what people tell me. How's your spiritual life? Blah. I'm like, I don't know what blah means, but confession will solve it. Because blah means I'm weighed down by stuff. And this is why. The number one sign, forgive me. Okay, I'm not trying to judge anyone, but I just, I really, I feel passionate about this stuff because I see people drowning in it. The number one sign to me of someone who's living a lukewarm life is when we avoid confession like the plague. We may talk about confession, but we avoid it like the plague. And we treat confession, sorry, sorry, sorry. I know I'm speaking some, I, I'm, I'm saying language that you said, sorry. We treat confession like a have to. Uh, I have to confess again. Uh, I have to have all my sins washed away. Like, woe is me. That's a sign of someone who for sure is going to struggle to live a passionate life. You know what a passionate person says? A passionate person says, oh my goodness, there's something between me and God. I've offended God. I don't want this distance. I want to be close to God. I don't want God to be upset at me, disappointed at me. I don't want any distance between me and God. Nothing to separate. So, Father Anthony, when can I come to confession? When can I get it removed? A passionate person seeks opportunities to close the gap between him and God. A lukewarm person sees the gap and says, eh, we'll get to it when we get to it. You want to know what confession is? Confession is Mark, or John 13, verse 8. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, I hate to say this, but if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. You have no part with me. <clears throat> Let's move on to the third one. The first one we said is an overfilled schedule. Second one is an unconfessed sin. Number three, an isolated life. An isolated life, trying to do it on your own. Why an isolated life will be a passionless life? Well, passion is like fire. The more you're around it, the bigger it gets. All of us on our own, it is inevitable that our passion will run out. It will. It's inevitable that we all go dry. I get dry, you get dry, like we all get dry. And what I have discovered, one of the best ways to reignite the fire, for me personally, you see, I'm a passionate guy, but I'm telling you, I get dry at sometimes. 
is to be around people who I can catch fire from them. Sometimes I struggle. I'm like, you know, I can't pray. I can't pray. I just can't pray. Like, I just don't know how to pray. I can't pray. This group over here is praying. Hey, can I join you guys? And all of a sudden, boom, prayer goes. Sometimes I'm like, you know what? The Bible doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand the Bible. It's, it's just written in gibberish. And then I sit with a group of people who's discussing the Bible and say, oh, I don't understand that. Oh, that's what you said? Oh, yeah. We gain passion. Passion is contagious. And the same way that the good passion, okay, the good fire can, can, can pass from one person to another, dryness, lukewarmness is also contagious. So if all your time is with passionless, dry, routine people, then it's just a matter of time before you are the same. This is why I'm a big fan of life groups. And this is why we make a big deal out of groups right here, because we don't believe we we're meant to live on our own. We believe, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Some people say to me about life groups, say, you know what, I don't enjoy life groups. I don't benefit from life groups. And I'm kind, it's fine, you know, like I'm, I'm not going like, to kick you out of the kingdom because of it, but what I say to you is this, then you don't understand the purpose of life groups. You think the purpose of life groups is to entertain you. And yes, they're not entertaining sometimes. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is not to find the funniest group of people that will keep me entertained. And the guy. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to grow. The purpose is to learn. The purpose is to catch fire from someone else. So sometimes, you know what? I'm the biggest introvert in this room. I'm the number one guy who, if it was left to myself, I'd sit in a corner. I was an IT consultant guy. I was a database guy. I did my best to avoid human beings for all my career before I was a priest. That's why irony of ironies is like, look what I'm doing now. I'm the number one introvert guy, but I'm the one who knows more than anyone else that I need people around me because I get dry and I go through downs. We had life group at my house the other day on Friday night, and I'm telling you, we had, I think we had 23 people in my house, okay? We got four who live there, and sometimes that seems like too many. We had 23 people come to my house, and I'm thinking to myself, I always say, like, I love my house and I love people, but the intersection of the two is not always my favorite thing. We had 23 people. It was the best. It flew by like that. Okay, everything was great. The house is still in one piece. Like that. It's Actually, it was 23 adults. How many little rugrats in the basement? I don't know how many was down there. But it was great because you know why? Because we learned from each other. And I'm like, oh, I never thought about it from that perspective. And you know what? It's encouraging for someone to say, hey, you know what? I've been in that situation. Like I find encouragement in those things, and I think you will as well when you give it a try. But an isolated life, try to do it on your own. It is inevitable that you will struggle. The spiritual life is like the show's survivor. People just start falling off the island. But there is safety in numbers. And when we're in a group, we're protected. Isolated life. So number one, three passion killers. Top three passion killers. We'll go number four. Number four is kind of the catch-all. Number one, we said is what? Who remembers? What was number one? What was the first passion killer? We said overfilled schedule. Number two passion killer is an unconfessed sin. And number three is isolated life. And number four doesn't really make much sense grammatically, but it kind of fits I want to try to make it sound catchy. An unprepared plan. I know, it's not a real. Go with me on this one. An unprepared plan. Meaning this. Here you are today. Do you desire to be exactly where you are today 10 years from now spiritually? Like, is that your goal? That where I am today, I will be in the same place 10 years from now? No. Every one of us would say we want to improve. We want to be more patient, we want to be more kind, we want to be more loving, we want to grow in faith, we want to grow in, in, our, in our love for people, like acceptance. Like we want to grow in these things. So my question to you is, what's your plan? What is your plan to get there? How are you attacking that? Or do you think it's going to happen by accident? Do you think it's like osmosis from the chairs? Like which chair is the one that's going to give me the most love or the most faith? Is that what you think? Because that's how many people approach it. I think just show up on Sunday, and if I just show up on Sunday and I sit in the pew and drink the coffee, I should be fine. That's not how it works. And many people who have gone down, sat in the same pew as you did, had drank the same coffee, and fell, because they had no plan. So my question to you is, what's your plan? Do you have a plan? Or are you just kind of hoping that, you know what, my fire will just kind of naturally be burning brighter in a couple years, and I'm just kind of hoping for that. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 24, verse 12. He said, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Now, for those of you who are thinking to yourself, this can't be me, this won't be me, don't worry about me, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, this won't be me. Well, let me tell you about a story when this was me. 
So probably about eight, nine years ago, something like that. I've been a priest several years. Wasn't at the beginning, wasn't at the end. It's somewhere in the middle. So let's say eight, nine years ago. I know all my stories to say eight, nine years ago because that's just, I don't remember. Okay. So let's go eight, nine years ago. At the time, my ministry was doing great. I'm a priest. Like, church I'm serving is growing. Like, I'm speaking in front of large groups of people. Like, I'm doing conferences and retreats. Like, I'm, like everything in the ministry is going great. Okay, and I'm working round the clock and I'm a hard worker and I'm focused and everything is going great and everything is flourishing. But something's off. And I know it's off. And the people closest to me know that it's off, but no one's going to say anything because it's not polite to tell the priest that he's off. And what was off, every one of these four killers, by the way, was there. My schedule was jam-packed and it was so jam-packed, but because I'm a priest, I justified it and said, you know what, I'm not too busy. I'm like serving tirelessly. Like I'm serving God and serving his people and this is just the price of service. And I justified all my busyness by serving. I was for sure, I was confessing, but I wasn't repenting because I was giving myself a pass on, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. So therefore it's okay, I cut some corners and I confessed it, but I wasn't really repenting. And for sure, isolated life, I had the, the, the improper belief that because I'm a priest, I don't need people, heathens, okay. people down there. I'm a priest. And believe it or not, that's what I was taught. I was taught that as a priest, you don't need people, that you serve the people, but you don't, like, learn from the people because you're a priest, okay? All right, but I was, that, that's, that's the way some, a lot of times it is. And here I am as a priest. I'm working around the clock. I'm helping people. I'm counseling people. I'm praying with people. I am not just praying. I am leading prayer meetings. I am not reading the Bible. I am giving Bible studies. Like I am at the top of the heap on the outside and everything is good. But on the inside, nothing. No connection. Passion had withered away. And the worst part was I had no idea what to do about it. I remember at this time when, when you start to go, when passion disappears, you know who's quick to jump in? Bitterness. Resentment. And I started to have this like, oh, God, okay, I'll do another meeting. But you owe me. Like, okay, God, I'll preach another sermon. This will be like the fourth sermon I preach this week. But I'll, as if like I'm doing God a favor. As if in my mind God's like, shh, Father Anthony's preaching. He's my favorite. Like, shh. As if like God needs my preaching. And I'm starting to get bitter on the inside as if I'm doing God a favor and God owes me and God owes me and God owes me. And I don't remember it like it was yesterday. I was driving home from church on a Sunday. I say from church, it was probably like six, seven o'clock at night, and I had been out since like probably six o'clock in that morning. And man, I was tired. I was tired, I was tired. I, I did everything. Man, I did my church, and I did the preaching, and I did the counseling, and I did the visits, and, 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 and. And I remember driving home, so exhausted. And I remember thinking about the week that was coming ahead. And I remember thinking to myself, man, it's like, God, okay, you owe me. And I remember it very clearly. You know what God said to me? God said to me, I don't want a thing from you. I don't care if you read the Bible. I don't care if you pray. I don't care if you ever preach another sermon. I don't care. Don't do any of that stuff for me. Don't feel guilty like you have to do your little quiet time. Okay, and like, oh, you did me a great favor. You did your quiet time. Hey, look, guys, Father Anthony's doing his quiet time. Everyone clap for him. I don't want your quiet time. I don't want your prayer. I don't want your Bible. I don't want your money. I don't want your service. I love you, and I want to spend time with you. And if you want to be with me, I'm here. But please don't do me any favors. And I remember. I remember saying, oh, my goodness. I have become a very successful priest and a very much failure as a child of God. And then you know my next thought right after that? I ain't going out like that. I'm not going out like that. I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to be that guy. It'd be easy to be that guy. I think I would do a very good job of being that guy. But I'm not going to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be somebody who leads prayer meetings and doesn't pray. I don't want to be somebody who gives Bible studies and doesn't read the Bible. I don't want to be someone who gives everyone communion and never has communion with God. I don't want to be that guy. 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 
But I realized that day is I need to be passionate about him because he's passionate about me. And the two has to match. I can't treat God less than his passion for me. Can you imagine if God treated us the way we treat him? And we stand up to pray. And God's like, oh, you're praying again? Didn't you just pray last week? You have to pray again? Okay, what is it you want? Uh, you want a message again? Can you imagine if we treated God, if God treated us the way we treat him? Once upon a time, there was a boy who wanted to marry a girl. And he went to that girl's dad, and he said, girl, dad, I want to marry the girl. Okay? And the dad said, you know what? I'm not going to let my girl marry you because you're in debt. You owe college loans, and you have credit card debt, and you, I'm not going to send my girl to go be in debt with you. So the boy said, you know what? I'm going to work hard. I'm going to pay off that debt. So that boy got, started working overtime at his job, started driving an Uber, started like mowing the lawns of the neighbors, like whatever it was, anything. He started like recycling the cans, and except in Vermont and California, whatever state. He started doing everything he can to get whatever money he could, to pennies, nickels, anything. And he's working and he's working and he's working. And the girl would be like, you know where I am? And he's like, I'm working, I'm working, I'm working. And finally, after months and months and months and months and months of working, working so hard, he comes back to the father. He pays the debt. He pays it off and says, now we can get married. And then he takes that girl, and they get married. And on the honeymoon, she says, why didn't you buy me new clothes while you're at it, too? You know, my car needs fixing. You should get to that as well. And she says to him, he says, uh, I can't wait to see you on the honeymoon. I can't wait to spend this time with you. And she's like, uh, do we have to spend, like, all day together? And like, okay, every day. You're appalled by that. You, like me, say that girl doesn't deserve that boy. After what he did for her, after he expressed his passion for her, man, her response makes me sick. Makes me want to puke. C.S. Lewis once famously said, he said, Christianity if false is of no importance. Christianity if true is of infinite importance. The one thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. You've heard that before, right? Christianity of false is of no importance. This is all made up. It's nonsense. Agree. Christianity of true is of infinite importance. Agree. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. It cannot be half-half because either it's true or it's not true. And if it's true, it's everything. If it's false, it's nothing. Well, let me ask you a question. How are you living your life? Hot? Good. Cold? Good. Lukewarm? Vomit is what the New Testament tells us. Let's go back to our core value. Can we say this together? Passionate pursuit of God says what? Read it with me. We don't stop worshiping after we leave the church. We seek to live passionate lives for God, pursuing him every day through prayer, Bible reading, giving, witnessing, and everything we do. My prayer today is that today would be a wake-up call for some of us who are just cruise control through life, just checking the boxes, just going through the motions, and just kind of assuming that, you know what, I'm good. I'm here to tell you today that your groom has a lot of passion for you. And unless you have that same passion for him, that mismatch is no good. What is it that's holding you back? Is it that you're too busy? If you're too busy for passion, then you're just simply too busy. Is it that you have sin that needs confessing? Get it taken care of. Okay, someone, to, what's, what's stopping you? You have free, no appointment needed every Saturday night. You get rid of that sin. You confess that sin. You move past it. Why carry the guilt any second longer than you need to? Or are you trying to do it on your own? You're living in isolation. You don't think that you need anyone around you. We all need to come up with a plan. Because today, like I said, last verse, and then I'm done. Our passionate groom says the following today to each one of us. He says, Revelation 3.20. This is the same passage, okay, where he said in verse 15, 16, vomit. Verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. The one who today knocks politely, the one who today says, I would like to come in, that same one, at some point in time, okay, not to get kind of scary right here, like he is going to come back, and he's not going to be knocking politely. Like today the knock is polite. He is going to come back. 
The one who was born in a manger will come back on a cloud of glory with angels and armies all around him. And when he comes back, he's going to come and grab his beautiful bride to live with him forever and ever and ever. And what makes us the beautiful bride who will go with him as ever? Not the one who did good, not the one who went to church, but the one who loves him passionately the way he loves her passionately. And my prayer is today we can all take a step in that direction. Let's stand for a prayer, please. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we thank you for the passion that you have for us, for your love for us, Lord, even though we're so unworthy and undeserving of it. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be passionate about you as well, that you would rekindle the flame inside all of us that was there at one time and kind of died out with busyness or isolation or guilt or shame or just not paying attention and having no plan. We pray that you would give us today, like, the courage to take a step in the right direction here and not be content with lukewarm anymore. We hate lukewarm the same way you do, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to move past it today. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, with the prayers of all your saints. Hear us, Lord, as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.